welcome to the Faith Space Podcast. I am your host, Kate Newell, along with... Other host, Reverend Dylan Doyle-Burke. And we are the co-founders of the Faith Space, which is a diverse group of interfaith leaders committed to reclaiming our calling and reviving our connection to one another and the divine. We are an intentional community dedicated to sparking creative and comprehensive solutions to the structural uncertainty of the world. So... We are so happy you're joining us for our second podcast ever, and we are joined by a special guest, Pempa Dilma. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much for this opportunity and invite. Pempa is um, one of the co-founders of Innovative Yogis, and we've Dylan and I have worked um, for a while with you guys and just really love what you're doing. Want to share a little bit about what Innovative Yogis is with the world? Hmm. Innovative Yogis is a response to a call that we heard that demanded that we're in a massive transformational um, time and a phase, and it required all the solutions that are available uh, for us. And then from the innovative side of it, the advancement of technology, lot of liberation and progressive movements um, but in the process sometimes we lose our values and morality and ethics and the you know the uh, the threat the heart of it and so that's where the principle of yogis come from that it actually contains us keeps us centered while innovating um, you know creative solutions for the challenges that are so uniquely our times challenge and are you running Innovative Yogis alone? No, I run it with my dear husband, Brett Engel. Um, he's a co-founder, co-conspirator in this. <laughs> and we will have Brett on, on a little bit later in the program today. But for right now, we're here with Pempa, and uh, we're actually in Brett and Pempa's home That's right true. now. Which is there? faith space. space that's what makes us different and unique too when we when we interview folks we love to ask where is your faith space um, it could be anywhere and so you chose your home and I really love that tell us why because it's a, a it's a time of uh, you know it's hard to get into the faith space you know because a lot of the faith spaces have been tainted mm-hmm. and then and not just because of that um, but for personally for myself I was you know, born in Tibet, brought up in India, my collective faith space and the temples that are not here, you know, the, there are not many Buddhist temples here. And even if there are, um, it's a little bit far, far. And so this is kind of like bringing the faith space in wherever you're at, basically. What do you mean by other faith spaces have been tainted? In terms of how, uh, in the recent times, especially, you know, this has been happening for a long time, but it's been exposed more and more in um, how the faith space becomes a, a trauma place uh, because of exploitations and, uh, um, you know, that kind of stuff. How did you experience that growing up, <clears throat> excuse me, in India um, and being a Tibetan refugee now in the U.S.? Um, this is just my story, right? It's not, um, um, you know, 
it's just uniquely mine and not comparable to other Tibetans. But I always grew up uh, suspicious of uh, rituals and mm. um, suspicious of, you know, kind of uh, spaces because there's such a hierarchy. And within myself, I feel like they shouldn't have all these hierarchies. Um, and then the uh, respect and the honor that was demanded um, from the traditions was like, I felt like unearned of a sort. Mm -hmm. And so I was always uh, like a little bit wary of, um, suspicious of just giving my power away mm -hmm. to that. And then I've also heard a lot of uh, anecdotal stories about the abuses that has happened in these faith spaces. Mm -hmm. And I've also seen how um, faith spaces, um, like you know, our monasteries and all, uh, you know, a lot of them are funded with others' generosity, but then there was exploitation of those donations too, mm -hmm. and yeah. become very like uh, materialist mm -hmm. in that sense. And so it became much more relevant for myself that um, this faith, um, you know, the devotion uh, to the um, truth and all of it is a very internal job. It doesn't, it, spaces helps a lot, supports a lot, but that's not the answer. You know, the, it really is a journey, it's an inward journey, and wherever we go, that we can create that, that space. Mm -hmm. and, so it's, and you've created that here in, yeah. in your home. Um, could you tell us a little bit about your home, about your faith space, and what makes it that sanctuary? for you, especially for those folks who aren't watching the video podcast, but can you just describe a little bit of your home for us right now? Yeah, it's so ironic that I, you know, I had such as, uh, you know, um, you know, misgivings and like a trust issues with the faith space. Yet when you look into, uh, look at this place, you see a lot of Tanka paintings, the Tibetan Tanka paintings, uh, these Buddha, you know, uh, faces and Bayan faces and, um, on my altar, um, there's, you know, a photo of uh, Siddhartha Buddha, and then uh, His Holiness the Dalai Lama's picture. Mm -hmm. And the rest, like a lot of things that came in here, I didn't buy them, people gave them to me. The only things are the pictures that I've taken, mm -hmm. that's it, like these are all gifted from people, and even the statues in there. And the Dalai Lama uh, picture, I don't know where I found it, it was in one of my uh, packs, and then I, when I saw it, it was like a, a rekindling of that. Um, he's my root teacher, mm -hmm. and his life um, exemplifies, uh, the, you know, the uh, sacrifices, um, you know, the compassion practice, the wisdom practices and stuff. And I grew up in the boarding school that he and his sisters founded oh, since wow. I was four and a half years old until I was 18 years old. And so I have the food that I have digested in all those time was as a result of the work he has done in the world. The donations that he had received went into the you know, formation of these bodies. And so it feels very um, connected in that sense. Like he's like a father and kind of a spiritual father. So the face spaces you've often been are Buddhist. Yes. Have you done anything in other different uh, religions or... Or interspiritual spaces. It's only been like um, Hinduism, Sikhism. Um, I'm married to uh, you know uh, his mom is uh, Christian, 
and so when we go for Christmas, I do the Christmas Eve, you know, uh, the singings and, you know, Jesus story and everything. Mm -hmm. And uh, I read quite a bit about, you know, other traditions and always felt like, um, you know, it's just uh, truth in different manifestations. Mm -hmm. and, uh, I'm curious about your time growing up in India, because at least when, when I visited, it was, it's always been, right? The history is such an interfaith space, sometimes in really beautiful ways and sometimes in really violent ways and otherwise. Um, and I'm wondering what it was like for you at that time, having come from Tibet to grow up more in, in India. Yeah, I love India. It's like, I don't know how to express India in words. And it's like so many people have a love and hate relationship with it. Yeah. But India is truly a secular country for me. Um, after having traveled around the world, um, the openness to all the religion, yes, and there's a lot more like a fundamentalist uh, religions coming out, you know, like it's happening all over the world, I see that. But in general, there's, um, people really don't care about, you know, uh, the differences. They much more go to the essence, mm -hmm. you know, love, you know, and um, trust in something bigger than uh, this small self. like and the goodness and that's permeates everywhere it's alive yeah. and so i didn't feel a sense of alienation uh on that ground at all um that i actually feel here mm. you know? mm. there's a lot more churches mm. than all the other traditional uh, faith spaces yeah what was that like coming to this country to the u.s as a tibetan yeah. woman it was very, yeah, it was very lonely and not feeling like there is any space for us. And even if the uh, Buddhist temples were here, and they're all run not by Tibetans, and you know, they're all, and yes, we have Sakyong Mipam and you know, the Shambhala tradition of it, but and that's uh, another, yeah, there's a whole another you know, podcast on that. Mm -hmm. um, but I never really felt um, home in those spaces, even if they're Buddhist spaces. Um, but when I go around, there's always like a churches, few blocks, and I don't see that in like a mosque or a, you know, a Hindu temple or uh, whatever, or a Tibetan monastery or stuff like that. Mm. That's what I notice, and then I do feel that loneliness mm. uh, from that place. So that's what you feel here in your faith space yeah. at home that you don't get in other spaces in this country specifically. Yeah, like. Uh, I come from a collective place. You imagine um, Bauda Temple in Kathmandu, right? You have a whole stupa, and every more, whole day you'll see people circumambulating, you know, um, prostrating, uh, putting the butter lambs, you know, uh, giving, um, you know, practicing generosity. It's a life, you know, it's like, it's, it really permeates everywhere. And here, this is my faith space, and this is where I feel at home. But when I uh, go outside, it just really feels sterile. And mm. you know, mm -hmm. it doesn't feel like there's, um, it's, it's just, you know, it's a spiritual bubble of a sort. It's not protected by that. And there's a hidden member of the household and family that we will not be interviewing today because <laughs> they are how old? Almost nine months old. Almost nine months old. It's yeah. uh, Jem, Brett, and Pempa's uh, child. Um, and I'm curious, in hearing your experience of your faith space here, 
and then raising a child in your faith space and then also in uh, this culture, what that is like for you. Yeah. Um, so we named him Dorji Jem Kandro, and Dorji means uh, the indestructible nature mm. and you know, the Christ consciousness, the Buddha nature and all of that, the uh, spirit. And then and Kandro is the sky dancer and the movement aspect of it. So one's like indestructible stillness and the other is the you know, movement component of that indestructibility. And that's his spiritual name. Usually in my tradition, we ask um, names to be given by our teachers, but I don't have them available here. So I had to kind of uh, come up with that. And then it just came uh, basically as like um, a protective name. It's a spiritual name. So that when he goes through a really hard time, work, you know, walking in this uh, confusing world, it's just like that in, that he was worthy from the beginning. He was conceived with intention. It was not an accident, mm -hmm. and there was this protection. And then Jem came as a result of Gifford Engel Martinez, which are from Brett's um, family side. Huh. And they brought him up, and he is the Jem's father, and it just came. It just Gifford Engel Martinez, Jem. And so it was very like a um, dance of those two together. I haven't heard that story before. I thought I wasn't sure if it was a gemstone or anything like that, but that, that lineage that comes yeah. through there, it's pretty incredible. And this child of yours is is so amazing. I think his eyes are really like this the portal, the gateway um, to the world I hope that we wanna create together. Um, thank you so much for sharing him in the face space with us as well. I think that's been so powerful, um, how to incorporate family. Um, I think that that's, that leads us more to our leadership questions too of how, how and I, we're gonna ask your husband this too, so don't think <laughs> that we're only asking the women, how do you balance family and yeah. professional life? Uh -huh. um, but really, how do you do it? How, <laughs> especially because you're rooted in your spiritual practice and you're a mother in America, what does that mean um, for your leadership style and mm -hmm. how you exist in more public spaces? Such a fascinating question. First, thank you for creating this space that allows us to bring our kid. It's a privilege. We recognize that we are like completely, completely privileged people. And part of the privilege that I came with is I came from a collective background that didn't have been, uh, that uh, hasn't been completely tainted by capitalism and individualism yet, mm -hmm. right? Um, because oh, it's coming. They're, they're, You're saying that it's yes, gonna happen. They're striving because okay. the illusion of American dream and it's so distant, and you yeah. you idolize that, you romanticize it, and you have to get in to realize the price and the cost of that uh, feeding and consumerism. And so for me, I recognize right away coming here uh, how unnecessary, uh, how many unnecessary things are here that are in access on the expense of someone else in some other part of the world. So there's excess here and there's scarcity there mm -hmm. in the material. But there is uh, so much spirituality there, abundance of spirituality there, and there's a lot of emptiness and scarcity here. Mm -hmm. So kind of not getting like, oh, in this, like a very dualistic, but kind of seeing both sides of the you know uh, coin. And so that's kind of what happened, coming here, recognizing that you know, capitalism is you know, part of the matrix, really trying to keep us from 
experiencing freedom and living life with joy and all. So it was a, a deliberate, intentional resistance to the uh, indoctrination of uh, our worthiness connected with success and achievement and all. So the work that we do, uh, you know, my husband Brett, I'm so lucky that um, it should be, I shouldn't be saying I'm so lucky, it should be a both partner res responsibility to upbring a decent human being um, but we had conversations, we had fights, we had, uh, you know, lots of reckonings that force us to uh, come to this place of, like, um, we both have to step up in whatever we can in all our ways. There's no, you're a man and I'm a woman and so you're not, you know, um, you shouldn't cook or clean or anything. So he helps with all of that. I do a lot of cleaning too, but I also help with the work and he helps. And so it's like, but also appreciating each other's strength. Mm -hmm. Things that comes easy for him, I let him do it. You know, things that comes easier for me and I'm happy and joyful doing it, I do that as well. And also part of the Dharma helps is like, it really keeps me on the dot of like, you know, it's like... Uh, in the cosmic, this we all just storytelling, you know, playing in this elusive reality, and it's constant practice to uh, stay grounded in um, relaxation in whatever I'm doing. And if I'm not able to do it, I know that out of my out of my integrity, and there's something going on. So I need to draw back and uh, investigate what that is, and until my belly settles and everything is cool, and then I can go out and serve. Um, and so in that way, it's like, I used to have so much guilt and shame, um, because the guilt of being here with all the privileges and not serving, you know, and the shame of the same, you know, similar. And I had to ask a lot of my um, those questions on, um, you know, how do I reconcile all of this? And a lot of times, it's, it's going to be a long talk, but um, when I ultimately ask uh, where you know um, I need to show up, it is to show up to take 100% responsibility for my own happiness. Mm -hmm. It's not responsibility for the rest of the world. And it mm -hmm. starts here, and then it extends. And I've been looking at it completely opposite. I've always looked at outside and let that enrage me and when the rage is over, then it goes into despair mm -hmm. and hopelessness and helplessness and complete disempowerment. And so it took me a decade to bring myself out of that mm -hmm. shadow into understanding how this is made up, like how karma is working in this form. And so that's kind of been part of the journey. I can imagine some of our listeners thinking, yeah, I want to take responsibility for my life and for my happiness, but how? How am I supposed to begin that, especially when it can be so painful and the work of transformation can just be so difficult? And I'm wondering for you, how, do you have any advice, I guess? Yeah. What do you wish someone told you 10 years ago? You didn't have to go through that. What? Yeah. yeah. I think the price that I was paying um, was too much. Uh, um, the price of confusion was too much. I had to renunciate it. I had, like, even if I'm not able to, even the body takes decades to catch up, but at least in my imagination, in my vision, 
I had to give up uh, the blaming, the shaming, the guilting, all the oppressive tactics. Um, I had to sit and contemplate the pros and cons of holding on to my own trauma. You know, I come from a, a you know, deep trauma background mm -hmm. of being a refugee and uh, poor and abused and all of that. And it was um, being acted out to the person that I'm in love with. Mm -hmm. And I want to have a good relationship. And this person I know definitely loves me and I love uh, him as well. And but yet the traumas would come and both traumas would fight and then it was a choice between, you know, drama or, you know, kind of uh, um, surrender in kind of accepting the reality. And, and whenever I resisted the reality and wanted him to change so I'd never had to be traumatized, it made me uh, even more disappointed, enraged and disempowered. And I had to really look inward and take responsibility for my own part, yet hold him accountable. And that's when I learned about the boundaries. It was really palpable. You could energetically feel those uh, happen. And so the advice would be to like, really look at the pros and cons of holding on to what you're holding on to, the addictions, the blames, and all of this. And the cost and the sacrifice is love is relationship, is the future of humanity, is the you know, abundance, it's the joy, it's the creativity, it's liberation, it's freedom. The price is so too much. And I was like, no, it's okay uh, to go through the pain of the initial uh, initiation. Mm -hmm. There's going to be an initiation pain of, mm -hmm. uh, you know, deconditioning um, and uh, renunciating the uh, habitual conditions that we have gone through that uh, keeps us in bondage and that initial there's a little bit of pain but that pain is actually really comparably nothing to the long like a lifelong struggle of um, you know um, of seeking happiness and never finding it mm -hmm. and the karma I think of, of remaining purposely ignorant um, it always finds us. Yeah. 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 And it's so, I think, as courage comes to me, mm -hmm. that's what it is, courage. And the courage to love and trust in spite of, despite of all that the reality is. And we all come with our own stories of why. And my story is we have come here to learn to love. There's no other point than that. Um, it's like, why all the suffering? So we can see that we truly are same thing we're injuring ourselves we're self-sabotaging ourselves and uh, even if it comes in this really gruesome uh, you know faces we have to be able to see that because when I'm in enraged and in complete confusion that's me I know that in my personal relationship how I can get you know and so uh, it everything serves as mirrors you know even if it's sometimes too extreme but it's a collective mirror Mm -hmm. And we do have extremes, you know, in ourselves and in others and everywhere. I know in this conversation we've mentioned um, some words like dharma and karma. Um, and for folks who may not know what those are, I'm wondering if you could say a little bit about what those mean to you in your own spiritual practice or how they inform your faith space that we're in today. Yeah, thank you. Um, dharma, I say, is like a cosmic law and order. 
in order to have a harmonious and perfect sacred geometry that's already here. And um, a lot of spirituality, religion, and all of that's trying to be aligned to that, but it comes from outside saying, you know, be good, and be loving, be compassionate, um, you know, be generous, be all of this. But that's how the cosmic law order is set up from inside. And so Dharma to me is that path that gets us to, you know, that lets us to be, live and abide by that. It's that path. Um, karma is um, basically cause and effect. Uh, whatever we do have uh, cause and effect. And it's not just here. It has a ripple, you know, effects exponentially. It's like unfathomable in us. And so it's like every word, every thought, every action we do, like even the mental movements to me are karmic actions, but that's like happening in, internally. And that's where I thrive the most is like internally what's happening. The behavior is, is fo focused only on the behavior from outside. And my, I'm much more in, in interested from like, can the behavior align with the energy from inside so that it doesn't have to, you know, from the repression blast up and destroy everything even though on temporary level we have restrained it with you know boxes yeah. and moralities and ethics and you know shaming and blaming and guilting all that comes as a result well, we love because, to do you know, that yeah. especially in the u.s right compartmentalize and label right yeah. which is wonderful because we do want clarity we want to name label know all of that but once we get fixated on it, mm. then it brings us in this tunnel vision, and now we can't see the bigger picture. I think they're all wonderful, like, you know, absolutely. Manifestation is full of labels, and that's the gorgeousness of it. But when we get hung up on one, and then we have to fight to keep that label now, you know, permanent, and I think it causes, like, violence and all this destruction stuff. I love your question about the cost. I love this cost-benefit analysis on a spiritual, moral, ethical level um, that informs our physical um, relationships as well as our spaces. Uh, it's just, you're such an inspiration to talk to. It's always wonderful to hear not only your personal life experiences, but your vision. And that's what we love to do with the faith space, and you embody it so wonderfully. Um, this very like tangible, micro aspect, the day-to-day -day ways of of karma and then you have the dharma piece as well thank you for the work that you do we are so grateful and in awe of what you bring to not only the faith space but really the world it makes us all better thank you again we're here with pempa of innovative yogis and pempa if folks at home want to find out more about innovative yogis uh, where can they do that on www.innovativeyogis.com and thank you so much for uh, really it's a precious opportunity it's uh, it's a joy and honor to collaborate with you and envision uh, this faith space and it's, you know it, it's going to be amazing if you can keep up with this energy and so thank you from the bottom of my heart for the effort and the dedication to this path thank you and thank you all for joining us this has been Kate and Dylan. Um, and uh, we will be right back with the other half of Innovative Yogis after this brief musical interlude.
Welcome back to The Faith Space. This is Kate. And Dylan. <laughs> we're your hosts, and we're back with our next guest, the second half of Innovative Yogis. That's a good way to put it. Yeah, Brett Engel. Hi, Brett. Hello. <laughs> Brett hello, and I hello. go way back. Yes. We've known each other for nearly a decade yeah, through Peace Jam. Crazy. If you all don't know Peace Jam, mm-hmm. Google it. Because yes, it's amazing. It is. Definitely check it out. Yeah. Brett and I also go way back about a month and a half now. So <laughs> rich, rich in textured history. <laughs> but it's really good to have him and uh, both halves, I guess three thirds, including Jem, which we talked about Jem a little oh, okay, bit in the good. first yeah. half. He's been podcast. introduced. That's good to know. Oh, yeah. yeah. The world needs to know. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we got. Pempa's blurb about innovative yogis, but we were wondering if you wanted to introduce innovative yogis from your perspective. Mm, okay. So for me, it's kind of the culmination of a journey of uh, becoming aware of things that I wasn't aware of. And I was always very much ignorance is bliss, and I think that's a good thing. So, like, let me maintain more ignorance, you know? And I, we know each other because of Peace Jam. And I grew up in a world of Nobel Peace Prize winners and activists and uh, students who were aspiring to be like that. And while I personally gave like not two shits about it, like I just was like, I don't care about any of this shit. No way. Yeah. It's, I, As a person who met you, because I wanted to be one of those people, yeah. <laughs> well, pretty shocking. It, it was 20 years of Peace Jam, so I'm talking about the, in the very beginning. You're a little over it. Yeah. And um, when, I, when I was a little kid, you know, because Peace Jam started, I was like 10. And Can you mention a little bit about what Peace Jam yeah, is? Yeah, so you know, Peace Jam is a, a nonprofit organization that brings Nobel Peace Prize winners together with youth from elementary school through college, uh, with educational pro- programming, with uh, conferences, and with uh, service projects. And so, um, and they also have a thing called the Billion Acts of Peace, which is kind of like the call to action from the Nobel laureates that are on the Peace Jam board. And it's about, you know, if we are going to create a world of true peace, here's kind of the 10 pillars that need to be addressed. And because peace is not just the absence of violence, peace is so much more than that. And um, so uh, they've kind of called to the world to take action on these 10 areas to do service projects and to not wait for other people to make the change, but you make the change yourself. Take, Take some sort of action in your life right now. So innovative yogis is the way that you are taking action, right? Creating yes, your exactly. one billion acts of peace. Yeah, so that was kind of how I came, you know, I finished working with Peace Jam uh, right at the end of, right at the pregnancy time. And we decided, on, you know, we'd been kind of building this innovative yogis thing and we decided once Jem was born, we wanted him to be born into a world of us, like living that. And so that he grew up with that experience, you know, the way I got to grow up with this experience of Peace Jam. And then on my father's side, he was creating something called Mind and Life, which also had a really big impact um, on the world. That was bringing the Dalai Lama together with scientists um, from all around the world, Nobel Prize winning scientists with this Nobel Peace Prize winning Buddhist monk, you know. And um, they were these like uh, science and faith type of dialogues going on. Um, but with the Buddhism is kind of like this platform to bridge it, you know, mm-hmm. and um, and His Holiness has always been very interested in science, and so he learned a bunch of science through this experience, and uh, scientists learned a lot of different ways of looking at reality from His Holiness, and then that affected their science, and so like a lot of what we're actually living in right now, that's kind of this, uh, you know, like a mainstreaming of meditation, 
um, more and more uh, weird stuff in physics and so on. Uh, a lot of that was influenced by these meetings that His Holiness was having with these scientists. And now this, we're kind of shifting, we're kind of expanding our way of looking at the reality and seeing that it doesn't have to be like this one or that one, that they're actually both talking about the same thing with like different language. And so for innovative yogis, do you see that as part of the mainstreaming or more of a countercultural component? Um, you know, for me, it's that these tools are like the, they're, they're like human birthrights to all of us. We all have the birthright to be able to breathe and be present. We all have the birthright and all the potential, all the capacity and capability to be able to um, go on a journey of like spiritual evolution within ourselves. You know, these things are there and there's tools to help us do it. It doesn't really matter what religion you come from, there's always a religion that, ha or a point in the religion that has this more um, esoteric uh, practicing, going into solitude, learning how to like connect in with your um, inner world, you know, and really go into that experience deeply and, um, and, and learn how this body is really just um, like a flesh suit that you're piloting through space right now, <laughs> you know, and that uh, it can, just like if you want to be a good pilot, like if you, you know, I have a cousin who's a pilot, he flies for airlines, but he really likes to fly like the stunt planes and do all this crazy stuff. And like to be able to do all that level of flying, you need to be like really in tune with your machine, right? Mm -hmm. You have to be very connected and understand it and to feel it and to know how to really control it. And so much of our body is set to autopilot, like it's built to just go on autopilots for us so we don't have to think about it, you know? And if we give it up all to autopilot and autopilot has just been set by all the cultural conditioning and programming and stuff, then we're just kind of trapped into it. You know? But if you learn how to go in as a mechanic and you know, tweak this and change that and actually now I have the machine working the way I want it to work, then you can show up in a whole different way and then your life can be about this whole spiritual evolution. You can uh, be applying that in everything that you're doing. So. I really love that. Especially we've had many episodes on uh, spiritual um, embodiment and, and what that means and that's, that's a crucial piece I think why so many people especially in the U.S. love yoga mm -hmm. um, it's a great way to access it mm -hmm. I just have a question I'm sure many of our listeners also want to know is the Dalai Lama your matchmaker with <laughs> kind of um, I mean he didn't directly influence but it was his blessing of him being in my life that led to the opportunity to meet Pempa for sure and his holiness kind of came into both of my parents lives um, in different ways, but then uh, later when Peace Jam was started and Mind and Life was started, these things brought them, like His Holiness into my life in like this kind of recurring way. Like I met him first when I was four hmm. and, um, and then I kind of saw him like every year or two after that because my parents were all often organizing events with them hmm. and so we would be at these experiences and so uh, I feel very, like at the time, I didn't really think anything of it. Like I was just like, this guy's kind of like a goofy guy in robes and <laughs> seems nice and all these adults are so impressed, but you know, whatever. And he's pretty goofy. He's funny. Oh, he's a lot of fun. He's a lot of fun. And he always would get excited because it would be often Mike and I, my brother, would be the only kids in the room full of a room of like really rich people because they're all like the people who gave the extra money to get into like the, <laughs> the VIP the VIP thing, you know. And there's no other little kids around, but it would be me and Mike without our parents because like they gave us the tickets so that we could go instead of them you know and um and he would be like oh it's you and then he get, came to recognize us and we worked with him through peace jam and um so it it's 
it's been like a real blessing in my life um, in the sense that I just got to be around that energy and to really feel it, like the, the power that comes from when you're able to cultivate, get your machine working in a good way. Like he meditates every day in the morning, like three to five hours, um, gets up super early and sits. And he's one of the most like active people I've ever known, like on the planet, like in terms of his travel schedule, he's just going around and what he's driven by is to be of service to as many people as possible, you know? So that's so much of your model and, and an influence. Um, I'm wondering how that shows up in innovative yogis. I'm wondering also, are, do you consider yourself Buddhist? Like we, we talked to Pempa and, and she's Tibetan, but did, did you like convert to Buddhism? What is your, what do you identify spiritually as basically? Yeah, I grew up and I always identified as a Bretonist because I believe in Brett mm -hmm. and I was not interested in religion at all and my mom was Christian so I would go to church on Easter and Christmas and my dad was Jewish um, but he didn't really practice a lot of Jewish stuff so we would sometimes do Hanukkah one or two times he took us to a temple um, but he had he had converted to Buddhism um, before he came into my life. He's, when I say my dad I'm referring to my stepfather technically and um, he uh, he would often refer to himself as a Buju, you know, and, and that he would still do Jewish stuff, but most of his practice was around Buddhism. So I got to see him doing meditation, and um, he would take us to retreats as a family and things like that when we were young. But like I said, I was, on one side, I was being exposed to, like, the yoga meditation world, and I was like, fuck this, like, you know, I'm not interested at all. This is a waste of my time, like, um, and then on the other side of it, um, Such being, irony. Yeah. You have to sit and now it's your entire life. <laughs> I know, yeah. And on the other side, I got this whole activism and Nobel Peace Prize winners thing. And, and I was like, yeah, you guys are all just making yourself way too stressed out. You know? <laughs> you know, you're just giving yourselves things to worry about. Whiny liberals type of thing. And, um, but I was like, it's so funny because I had that feeling, but then I would be forced to be at a Peace Jam for a, you know, a weekend mm. and be around all these people who I like thought negatively about their opinions. But then I'd be like, oh, these are really nice people. They're really fun. <laughs> and, and so I, like, it always, I was exposed to these things and I saw the benefits of them, um, but I was just in my own jaded, hurt self and didn't want to expand yet. So how did that, how did that transformation happen where you go from this person who's exposed to all these people who to some degree you're like, oh, there's a really nice people to some degree you're like, fuck this, <laughs> to then really owning your own yoga, uh, do you want to say yoga studio or yoga organization with your wife mm -hmm. from Tibet yeah, yeah, and having a house that Pempa described to us earlier with these tapestries on the mm -hmm. wall and spirituality seems to really be a center for you yeah. now. So how did that happen? Um, I think... I went through a certain amount of breaking out of selfishness because um, I was super selfish. Still, I like struggle with being so selfish, mm -hmm. and it's like I have to like do an active work to like be not selfish. And then I'm like get real tired. I'm like, oh my god, all this not being selfish has been really draining. You know, I'm, <laughs> I need a couple of days of just me. <laughs> and so uh, I think that was part of what was blocking me because I was in my selfishness and just only cared about my own suffering. And I had my reasons that felt really valid of why I should be so angry and upset and down on the world and everything like that. Um, and so, but then in my 
college time um, when I was studying psychology. Um, and I was like full atheist too at this time in my studying psychology. I was like, yeah, this, that just makes sense. All religious stuff is just bullshit. George Carlin's got everything right. And, and he's, he's got a lot right, but I, I, I see some of the holes now. And um, so uh, in this psychology setting and then being with Pempa um, and having this relationship that had, was my, my first real serious, long you know, like it felt like is going to be the rest of my life. Like I really believe that that's what we're developing here, you know? So there was this new like foundation of safety and security from that. Um, and I was going to school for the first time and actually wanting to go to school, whereas I'd always been forced to go to school. And so I was having my first experience of enjoying school. And so I just went full out into the psychology stuff and it made me realize so many of my habits and patterns and things. And I said to see where they were coming from. And, and it forced me to go, okay, let me reevaluate all these things that I was exposed to that I was saying, fuck this, fuck that. And I started to see how important the activist stuff was and this peace work was. And I started to see how important this like internal work was and how helpful these tools of meditation and yoga and so on are. And how they're not, uh, like meditation and yoga is like, to me I like because it's the most generic thing to refer to it. But it's like, you know, it's prayer, it's intention setting, it's like all these things that um, generally get kind of dismissed, you know, because they're not like physical, tangible things that I dismissed for sure. You know, I was like, I'm not Who's interested. the first thing to go, right? When, yeah. when shit hits the fan, it's like, oh, the last thing I want to do is pray right now. Yeah, I have exactly. to like work extra hard. Yeah, exactly. So how were you able to switch that, like... You're kind of switching your muscle in a way. It like is. Your knee-jerk reaction had to completely change. How did it do that? Yeah, um, I think part of it was that uh, I'd always had this, and I think this is something we all have. Like in Buddhist, in Buddhism, we talk about we all have the Buddha nature, mm-hmm. right? Um, that there's this, you know, luminous uh, awareness inside of all of us, and it's you know, universal, that we all have it and we are all capable of being fully connected with it, right? And, um, and so my experience of that is, you know, from a kid, there was certain, uh, you know, cultural stories and things like that that were more magical that my heart really went to. And I really believed and felt connected with and I would have these much more spiritual, like loving God type of experience, but I didn't know what they were, you know? And, um, but I felt that. And then as I got older, I, my, all the, maps of meaning that were being created in my mind in order to fit into the society and to be accepted and all the stuff that happens in the way that our minds get reshaped then i started going okay i I don't want to keep being made fun of for like believing in this you know spiritual type of thing i want to fit in with these guys who are all like let's you know get the girls and let's get fucking wasted and let's do the crazy stuff and let's be the coolest ones in school because we think we're just cooler than everyone else that's why we're now cool you know Mm -hmm. Because you determined it. So. Yeah, we, we have decided it. And these guys are all fucking losers, mm-hmm. you know? And so... Um, Which is the real heart of spirituality. Yeah. Right? yeah. <laughs> so what I often say to people that uh, no one transforms or changes anything unless you're uncomfortable yes. enough. You're kind of like pushed to do it. So... Yes, that's Tell exactly, us yeah. what was so uncomfortable for you. Yeah, for me, the discomfort came from... Uh, well by seeing my patterns and habits and where they were coming from and losing excuses that I had for them, then I was like, oh shit, like now I have to face them and feel them and own it. And like, I don't like having to own it. Like I feel, you know, uh, it was easier when I could excuse it, you know? Mm. 
And um, and then that made me start to read and look at um, this kind of spiritual stuff in a way that I had never looked at it before. And um, and I, but before the spiritual stuff, I looked at more like the conspiracy stuff because mm -hmm. I was coming from like really mainstream atheist. Mm -hmm. And I was like, everything can be explained from like a materialist perspective. Anytime you try to explain it without that, you're just, you know, selling out and just, you know, or a bad writer or something like that. <laughs> um, and uh, so I first I started going, okay, it seems like there's more to this world than what seems to be there. Like, because just this materialist mindset is leaving me in all this suffering. Um, so, but then I started thinking about aliens and space and weird science and you know, what kind of weird stuff's going on behind the scenes that, you know, we're not paying attention to. And what I realized, like, part of it was looking into, like, the activist side of the world. Because I part of what I'd always done is dismissed a bunch of these activist people. It's just, like, whiny people saying that this is bad for our health, whatever. And, um... Damn. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, so activists me, like, out there. Yeah, like, first step into conspiracy was, like, maybe the activists are not just bullshitting, you know? Because, <laughs> to me, they were just conspiracy in a lot of ways. Uh -huh. And, um, and so then I just kind of kept doing that. And since I was in school, um, doing the uh, university degree, and, and it was in psychology, it was about investigation and doing it in the scientific method and you know, this kind of uh, objective awareness and so on. Um, and so I just kept you know, applying that process and going deeper and I started going, okay, shit's a lot weirder than I thought. And I keep <laughs> running into very spiritual reference stuff as you get into the weirder stuff. And then I was like, okay, well, I'm studying psychology. Let me look at the science of meditation. Let me look at what all these mind and life scientists were saying while I was growing up. And I started looking them up and was like, oh, these guys were actually like, like Richie Davidson's kind of like the head of the field. I didn't realize he was just like Richie that was there at the <laughs> retreat with us, you know? And so then I realized that there is this like strong body of research that shows that this human machine is actually built to be able to do this stuff. And it is available to all of us, and we can all, everyone benefits from practicing it and training it. And the main source of delivery for this information has been from a religious side in, in our past. You know? And that's the history of it, right? It started yeah. out as religion, and theologians were the original scientists. They were the mm -hmm. ones asking all these questions. Exactly. And now we have scientists doing the work, and it, and it may be a different way. Mm -hmm. Very similar similar questions yeah i still i find this this transformation fascinating from this almost like richard dawkins scorched earth <laughs> <laughs> right? so which is like guys. this is all just awful and wrong and yeah. you're just thinking about god as this this like magical man in the sky who's going to grant wishes that mm -hmm. kind of mentality mm -hmm. which is also something that resonates with me as uh, when before i was in ministry when i was you know in high school because mm. that was the cool way to think about God, especially yeah. going to you know, a small, mostly white, private school, uh -huh. um, and that I couldn't be. Yeah, I went to church. I didn't tell anyone I went to church, right? Um, and even if I, you know, I went to church, I wasn't even going to a Christian church, and if I said I was Christian at all or had a Christology, mm -hmm. uh, I would be made fun of yeah, right? yeah. in the locker room or whatever, and that was just you know, mm -hmm. my, my own setting. So you're saying masculinity and toxic masculinity is tied to spirituality or lack thereof? I felt that in my life for sure yeah it felt like uh the especially the way that the toxic masculinity has manifested in this consumerist society where it, it is about um trying to solve our problems with all this external stuff rather than getting the tools to kind of go into our own experience and and you know the religious has been the source of that and being open in the heart and being loving and being vulnerable are like part of the religious experience um that 
that was like the you know the 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 place in our society and our culture where that information was being taught from and being brought from. I know that all the institutions have at times that have completely distorted that and done horrible things, which that's why I, all, that stuff was so convincing, you know, because there's all this data of like crusades and shit like that, and you're like yeah. inquisitions, and you're like, what the fuck, you know? Yeah. Um, so it makes I can see that point, and it any institution can be used very evilly for sure. Yes. Um, and so, but the true heart of the spirituality and the connection and the love, because like it really comes down to the love thing. Like with the Buddhism thing, you get there from the interconnectedness. You're realizing that everything is interconnected, that you're not actually separate from anything. Then you start to go, wait a minute. So then what I'm doing to out there is what I'm doing to me. And then compassion becomes much more natural because it's even technically selfish to be compassionate. Mm -hmm. So like even someone like me who's so selfish, it was easy to like easier path into compassion because I'm like, oh, I'm not doing it for them. I'm doing it for me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, that's one of the questions because I heard you use the word spirituality and religious experience quite a few times during this conversation. And I'm wondering what that means to you. Like what is a spiritual experience for you? What is a religious experience? And then getting back to where we are, how does this space that you've created as your home and sanctuary, how does that feed into that spirituality and spiritual experience? Yeah, I feel like the mystical experience is very essential to spirituality because it seems to be like universal. Um, I, and there's this universality to certain things. Um, uh, when I first got into psychology, it was because of body language. And what I, you learn very quickly is that there's cultural body language and there's universal body language. Mm. And the universal body language, no matter where you are on the planet, humans will respond and their muscles will move in certain ways to sh express certain emotions. But um, the cultural stuff can be very different. Like, you know, this, like the okay symbol here can be like up yours in another country, mm -hmm. you know? And so there's a lot of cultural uh, truth and there's a lot of universal truth. And that's how I see religion comes out. There's a lot of like, you know, cultural story, cultural version. This is the way it is. This is, you know, our ritual and this is the ritual that's right. And then, you know, the, that's the cultural truth. And then there's like the universal truth, which always gets back into like the love and connectedness and uh, surrender and forgiveness and, um, you know, this healing process. And then the mystical experience, it seems to be universal as well of, um, this true actual experience of the oneness of the transcendent you know that it's not, and this is available to all of us it's not just available to like this one really special guy in our religion you know it's not just the Dalai Lama who can get it it's everyone has the ability to have this experience and that scientifically we would say well then let's test it right and that's what these meditators have been doing and what they've these systems and schools have done they've tested it and they've given um, the opportunity for other people to replicate their tests and try it for themselves, mm -hmm. you know, and it's not about just believe it's about here practice these techniques Here's the parameters for how you run your experiment apply these things, you know Do it for this many amount of time and then check to see the results on your brain See what happened, you know, and now we actually have brain scans to show it mm -hmm. But before even before brain scans you could apply it to yourself and see so. Well, that's why what we I love what we do here at the Faith Space is interdisciplinary and interfaith that it doesn't matter how really you come to it. I've studied a lot of science as well. Mm -hmm. um, I'm more of a person that started on the faith side and was like, great, now science caught up and can prove <laughs> what I already yeah, knew. Yeah. I think mystics would agree with that. I think so. Historically so. Mm -hmm. But I love that you're bringing that flavor. Um, and that is a piece of your transformation that's really the causation of it. And yeah. I, I think that's wonderful. Yeah, because I was in a place where I was like, I can't abandon science. Science was like so important to me. 
Um, but then when I started to see that actually there's a scientific way of understanding the spiritual experience and that um, I can learn it and apply it and actually live it my, in my own life and become to embody these things, um, then it, it was like all the opposition just disappeared and it was just like it all just blended into this thing that allowed me to step forward when I was like scared to step into anything spiritual before. I am incredibly struck in this conversation about how different it is than the conversation that we have with Pempa, oh, with yeah. some similarities, <laughs> right? Um, and both of you from very these very different backgrounds, and it mm -hmm. sounds like you from more of a skeptical scientific background, and mm -hmm. her also from a different type of, of skepticism yes. about organized religion, uh, but that you've come together to create something. Mm -hmm. And the reason why I keep bringing up your home, besides the fact that you know we're filming here and hosting the podcast here today, mm -hmm. is the fact that you also run innovative yogi classes here yeah and events yeah and i'm wondering true. if you can talk about that that partnership and then also this space that you run innovative yogis out of yeah and the leadership piece would be great too because you both are co-leaders in doing it it's true yeah we've always done everything together that was like we met and there was just this mutual respect from the beginning we just like saw each other's fire and badass badassness, and it was like, okay, <laughs> all right, I see that, yeah. I like that word, badassness. I think <laughs> yeah. we have to use that more in our branding. Yeah. And so, um, what? And then part of what like made me confident to like go for our relationship even further was that we would have times where we worked together on projects, and we would always actually have a really good time doing it. And we would co-lead it, and we would listen to each other. Um, it's funny though, as our relationship went on later in time and then we started to get lazy on things and such and we started to fight when we were working mm -hmm. and we had to go through this whole process because all the personal relationship stuff had left certain uh, uh, samskaras impressions that had created new triggers you know and then the work time would bring those triggers up so then we couldn't do the work time anymore because it was always so connected with all these other personal things that we were going through and um, is that where innovative yogis came out of Partially, yes, because we were going through our own changing experience and we were like, all right, this is really tough. It's really intense and um, we're doing it our way and going through our process. And we need to figure out now that we've made some progress on it and we see that um, how important this is for everyone to have access to, we need to create something that makes it available for everyone. Mm -hmm. And because to us, the, all the big problems on our planet right now are just a crisis of consciousness. And the, we, it used to be much easier to believe that it was a crisis of lack of resources or lack of technology or lack of, but like we have the technology, we have the resources to take care and feed everyone, to house everyone, to have such a completely different system on this planet. But we're not doing these things because of this crisis of our consciousness. And we have this crisis because we're just all these traumatized people following traumatized people. And no one is actually saying, hey, we all as a, fucking planet need to take a break and do this work together and do this healing together and um and then through that change through that uh, consciousness um evolution that we all go through because the evolution part of it is you have to, things have to die things have to be let go of things have to be you know uh, surrendered and then the new can come and the new can build and once that happens, then all of a sudden we'll all look around and be like, oh, sweet, we have all the resources, we have everything. Like, in, like very quickly, we could fix so many of the problems. Mm -hmm. But if we don't fix that consciousness crisis, uh, we'll have all these solutions sitting in front of us and we won't do anything because we'll be squabbling about all this stuff because we're all so wounded and so hurt and so not able to actually talk about 
the real solution because we just hear the triggers that the other people are saying. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like part of that healing process and dealing with the trauma, the collective trauma that we have for you and Pempa and Innovative Yogis begins at home and yes. begins within your family. Yeah, and it's, I think we need to empower all families to be able to have that type of experience, you know? Because um, that's so much of where the, the root problems stem from, not being able to be connected with you, the people that you love the most. Like having love in your life is like most essential thing. You know, people who are loved and feel connected with their community live longer, have higher health. Like uh, we, we studied health psychology and health psychology was like woo woo in the beginning mm -hmm. in the sense that these psychologists were t walking up to doctors and saying, hey, it's not just the fatty thing that they ate that caused the heart attack. It's the stress that they're under because they're type A type people and they're really like stressed. And they're like, ah, yeah. And um, so now we understand in so many ways that uh, the wounds and sufferings that we're going through are all being exacerbated by stress. And we don't really have the tools of how to like live a, like a stressless life because the society is constantly encouraging us to be in these stress states. Mm -hmm. And there's a certain amount of like stress. Technically, all stress is is your body in a sympathetic nervous system activation, mm -hmm. right? Which means that it's putting out the cortisol instead of giving you the ability for the digestion and you know blood flow. It's saying blood to the extremities, be ready to fight, be ready to take action. And, um, and it's not a bad thing, but if you're there all the time, then it, it drains on your system. So. I'm so glad you mentioned the health piece. I feel like so much of what we do at the Faith Space as well is a public health organization. Yeah. And people often put spirituality separate from our embodiment, and you are so right, Brett, that they're all the same thing. Yeah. So thank you for bringing that up. Thank you for being so vulnerable and open about your family, your organization, even your past. I will tell you, it's, it's a little tough hearing <laughs> that someone who met so many Nobel Peace Prize winners uh, still didn't get it until you did. Yeah. Um, and that's I love that story too, though, because it takes every single language. And mm -hmm. that's why we need an interdisciplinary and interspiritual approach mm -hmm. to all this work. Thank you for being a part of our collective. Yeah. Thank you we for love being... being part of it. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> and Dylan and I just are so grateful for your support and for um, your engagement, really, and your leadership. Um, you brought up so many good things today. I think we could have so many more <laughs> episodes just based on this. So. And Brett, just as a reminder, if folks wanted to find out more about your... Can I call it a ministry? Your ministry? Yeah, uh, sure. Is that you okay? Know, in a sense, does that feel is. right? <laughs> that's my language, not yeah, necessarily no, that's yours. Fine. But if folks wanted to find out more about Innovative Yogis, where could they do that? Uh, InnovativeYogis.com, and everything's there. And you know, we're on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram as well, uh, Patreon. Um, the main way we're really making this thing happen is we're looking for people who believe in what we're doing and who want to make it available and who want to literally vote with their dollar and just put a dollar a month um, through Patreon um, and become a patron. So that's one way that we're going to make this possible by kind of not going into the standard um, capitalist route um, because once you start going into that path, there's so many pressures that hit you. Um, and you're not able to uh, be as authentic and so on. We see this thing that happens. It's, you know, it happens to science. It happens to all elements of our society. It happens to religion even, you know. Mm -hmm. And so... Some prosperity gospel. Yeah. yeah. And so, uh, but we, we're living in a time where we can all microfinance each other. And we can all make a choice just through our phone to quickly say, okay, a dollar a month going to go to this thing that I believe in. And so uh, that's 
our hope is that people will support us and we are also using Patreon to support other things that we believe in as innovative yogis that we think that are gonna help shift the consciousness and help us break through this crisis. So. Thank you so much for sharing that. I totally agree. Vote with your dollar. Yes. Support Innovative Yogis. Definitely support The Face Space. <laughs> you know where to find us at thefacebase.org. Thank you so much for joining us at this podcast. I've been your host, Kate Newell, and... Dylan. <laughs> We're going to have to find a better way to, to close off. Is there any other last words that we want to say or close out with, Kate? I really just want to say that I'm in a space of gratitude. And so this week for our listeners, if you just want to um, anchor in that space and remind yourself what you're really, really grateful for, I love what you said, Brett, about like love being a part of a healthy life. So find what you love, find who you love, relish it. Um, it's a true, true blessing. I certainly love both of you. Yes. We love you too, We Kate. love you too, Kate. <laughs> I, I think one thing that I'm taking away from this is how much of a journey spirituality has to be, almost. Um, that there is no easy way to finding that meaning in our lives. Um, and also the things that we might think of as objectively good can sometimes be either a, a turnoff or hard to access. I know I've spent a lot of time in the activist community, and I often wonder how often the language that I use um, is bringing people in mm -hmm. and how often it is actually creating mm -hmm. a gate. And so I think one of the other uh, invitations that we have this week is to think about how you're engaging with your spiritual journey and thinking about how you're engaging with others along that journey. Thank you so much for joining us. You can find out more info at thefaithspace.org. And we are grateful for you, our wider community. Wherever you are, you are blessed and a blessing.